I am, uh, I'm excited you guys are here. I am, I'm so happy that a lot of you are, I think, return guests from Easter, or maybe some people who watched online who decided to come and check us out live. So thank you so much. My name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors, and we're starting a brand new series today uh, called Heckler, and the whole entire series is dealing with the lovely to talk about subject of shame uh, and how it impacts our lives. And I think there's, there's probably some really good reasons why God has laid this on our heart for this season, and I think it's because our community is really expanding, which means we need to get to know each other as whole people, and we need to get to know each other's stories, and we get to know each other's journeys, and that also means along the way, eventually, we're going to know each other's um, hurts and, and uh, concerns, and a lot of times people stop in their relational journey when it comes to that particular thing because it's so bound up in shame, and so this series is... Uh, is, is, not, is not one that I have really enjoyed prepping for, I'm going to be honest. Um, I often will experience the thing that I'm studying, and so I, I got more of this in my life than I realized, and so uh, I just want to be very honest and very authentic and say that if I have to do it, you have to do it. It's not fair if it's just, just me doing the hard stuff. So, um, so I, but for reals, thank you for being here. Thank you for w- being willing to be like a, a whole human and recognize that we all have this struggle, and uh, we're going to talk about that today, and uh, that you are welcome here. Uh, Church is a messy place. It comes with lots of strings attached. It comes with lots of woundings, and it comes with some really beautiful, beautiful community if it can be held well, but I think the only way we can do that is to hold all of it, and that includes the hard stuff like, uh, like this series. So, so I'm grateful, and I'm thankful, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in. Um, we're going to take off right after the, the Easter story kind of transition. So uh, last weekend, uh, we talked about the Easter story and how the disciples uh, found Jesus not in the tomb, and then Jesus came to them, and they had discussions and all those different things. And then they had one last kind of face-to-face. It would be like if Jesus got everybody in. He's like, gather around, boys, gather around, put your hands in, go out and change the world. Like it was... It was sort of that sort of, of, of conversation. And we're going to pick it up in Mark 16, uh, verse 14 through 19. This is right after Easter, right after the Easter story, and what happens next. It says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Uh, This passage is known as the Great Commission, and there's two classic examples of this. This one is in Mark. The other one is in Matthew. And again, it's this last sort of time when the disciples get time with Jesus and then they get set out into the world. And a lot of churches, especially preachers, we love this passage because we love to talk about the the power of receiving God's commission to go and do new things. And we kind of lean into this text and we have for many years around this idea that when you accept Jesus, you basically become a superhero. 
Like you basically get a cape for Christ. You, you can drink poison and, and not die. You can hold poisonous snakes and, and it not be a bother. Like, like you are kind of invincible when you accept Christ, which means if you've accepted Christ and you have never held a poisonous snake, have you really ever accepted Christ? <laughs> And if, you, if, you, if you've had some poison in your life or you got food sickness, right? Like you ate some bad Chinese food and, and then you were sick, it's like, mm, sounds like a spiritual problem to me. Because clearly that's what this verse says. Now, <laughs> this is where Kesset just gets messy and this is where I get emails, not from you guys, but from other pastors. Because I have problems with verses like this. And the reason I have problems is because of how they use and the context they use. So I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. We did a whole series on this. Um, what if you're reading the Bible wrong? What if, what if you are not actually engaging in the word the way it's supposed to be engaged? And what if, what if the Bible has been read wrong over you? And what if some of the shame that many of us have experienced is because of things taken out of context, poured into our lives, and made just normal? Instead of recognizing that there's actually more to this story. As a matter of fact, this passage that I just read you is so controversial among theologians. It is so controversial and so doesn't really fit well with the rest of the book that in every single Bible in this room, unless you brought a 1611 King James Version, everything past 1611, people have struggled with this passage and they have added this phrase before this passage starts. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include what you just read. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? See, when the 1611 Bible was written, they had documents all the way back to 300 years after Christ was risen from the dead. And it included this passage. But then after 1611, just a few years later, they found even older documents, meaning even closer documents to the source, 80, 90, 100 years after Christ had risen. And they were texts that measured and, and balanced many other texts. And guess what, folks? This one wasn't in it. It wasn't in it. So they said, well, we don't know if we should take it out because it's really cool. I want to be able to hold poisonous snakes. I want to be a superhero for Jesus, but I, but I don't really feel like it fits everywhere else. So let's just put the little asterisk and let's leave it in there and then we'll let people decide. And then if those people want to know more, they can study it, which I would invite all of you to study that passage and, and do your own research. I already had people earlier, especially some older folks who were like, wait, what are you saying? And I'm like, I'm saying it. And they're like, I don't think I can do that. And I'm like, I know. You have to sit and look at this text and how it fits. And more importantly, if that passage isn't in there, then guess what? Because in the Matthew passage, it's not like that. In the Matthew passage, it's like, Jesus is like, hey guys, go out into all the world, change it, preach it. It's gonna be hard. Which means those people go out into the world, Jesus, right, sends the Holy Spirit, the same one we get to engage with right now, the same one that I'm, I'm dancing with in this room right now, that I'm feeling the room and you're feeling, if I'm, is this real? Is this genuine? Where is he going with this? That's all Holy Spirit stuff. That's what he does. And if that's true, that means that those disciples were sent into the world with all their stuff intact, meaning Peter went into the world as the denier. Every room he walked in, I guarantee you people were like, oh, there's Peter. Yeah, he was one of Jesus' favorites, but he also denied him three times. Oh, there's, there's Thomas. Yeah, he talks, he talks a big talk. But do you know he doubted Jesus like right to his face? He had to touch his scars to believe. Psh. 
Everybody has a part of their story like that. It's that part of your story where you're having coffee with someone and you're having a discussion and then they ask just the right question that sets you up to either lie or share something embarrassing about yourself. Where you're like, uh, yeah, yep I, yep, I was married before and yep, I do have this situation and yep, I, yep, I do have kids with different dads and yep, I was bankrupt and yep, I, I was in prison and yep, I did rage throughout my teenage years and yep, I used to be an addict and then that's when the person across from you, if they're not really, really well-versed in holding the human condition, does this. Mm. People love to do this to me, by the way, right? Because I sit under lights and they're like, he seems genuine, but I wonder where his mess is. And so they'll just try to ask all the questions. Usually happens at a dinner of some sort. And they'll start asking questions and they'll get to part of my story where they'll go, "Mm." but I got really good at it. So I just started jumping right to the point. And then I come after their stories. And I'm like, so what about, what about, what about, "Mm." The difference between me at a dinner and you at a dinner is I can use your story as a sermon illustration. That's the difference. That's the difference. Best watch yourself. But it's all of us, right? It's all of us sitting with people and trying to figure out where are you and where am I and what do you believe and what do I believe and how do we exist together And I don't disappoint you and you don't disappoint me. And sometimes it's just so messy and complicated, we'd rather just not share it at all. So instead, we just present ourselves as superheroes for Jesus, never having a struggle in our marriage, never having a struggle in our theology, never reading anything in the Bible we don't understand, or, God forbid, disagree with, that we're like, I don't really know if I understand this. Do you know how important it is to disagree with the Bible, especially early in your faith? It is so important for you to ask the real questions because Disagreeing allows you to sit in conversation so that you can best understand in context so it actually becomes part of your life. Instead of just going, I don't get it and I don't like it, but pastor says so, so okay. None of that stuff sticks. Especially for those of us who've been reading the Bible for years and years. Do you know how much, how sad I am about the youth group I used to have and the way I used to teach this book when I was 24 years old? It's not good. And if back then someone would have given me permission to push and prod and, and, and filter some of my own shame, I bet I would have got to a better understanding sooner, not only of God's word, but of myself. And so that's what this series is going to dive into. We're going to dive into this difficult, difficult topic, and we're going to do it honest, and we're going to do it authentic, and it's going to be, I already said, a hot mess. But it's going to be our hot mess, not just Danny's hot mess that you get to come and watch and collectively go, "Mm." yeah, and the Holy Spirit's going to, I hope, prod you like he's prodding me, and we're going to do it together, and I believe freedom is very much on its way, very much. Amen? Let me give you some clinical information around shame. That way, uh, those of us with that side of our brain needing to, to function. I, I can do some spiritual stuff. I can do some emotional stuff, but I think the cl- clinical stuff is really important. Here's a clinical definition of shame. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. That's the working definition of shame that we're going to work with when we talk about the clinical side of shame. This definition was written by Brene Brown. If you haven't seen any of her shame stuff, specifically her shame stuff from a clinical 
uh, uh, standpoint is, is really profound. She's a research professor who has been studying shame and vulnerability for over 20 years. And she has a lot of data when it comes to just human beings and how shame works within their person. Here's some facts around shame due to the uh, thousands of people that she has surveyed and interviewed around this topic. First off, right away, we all have it. Every single person has it. Shame is universal and one of the most primitive emotions that we experience. The only people who don't experience are those who lack the capacity for empathy and human connection. So if you came in thinking, I don't know, this series is going to be good, but I bet it's going to be really good for my wife because she's got some stuff she needs to deal with. Um, that, that's wrong. That's wrong. This series is for you. It's not for your friend. It's not even for your kids. It's for you. It's for your story and it's for where you're at. And if you don't know where it is in your story, that's part of what the series is going to help you find so that you can figure out how it's affecting you. Because the reality is if you don't know that, you're, that you have shame, then you won't understand some of the behavior you're having the stuff you're recycling in your life, if you don't understand that some of it comes from shame, it'll never change. So we have to face the fact that we all have it. Second, we are all afraid to talk about it. Everyone that I've told I'm doing this series goes, why? Like, why would you do that to us, to yourself? Like, why is this what, what you've chosen to do? And I, I didn't choose it. Um, I felt strong and so did the team that this is what God had next for our, our church family. And uh, maybe even for some of our leaders, some of our pastors, that, that we were operating a little bit maybe out of a mechanism that was unknown that I think sits a lot in shame. And so um, we're going to talk about it. Sometimes we can even feel shame when we just say the word shame. But it's getting easier as more people are willing to sit in spaces like the one that you are courageously sitting in. So if you're uncomfortable or you have apprehension about where this series is going to go, you're perfectly normal. That, that makes a lot of sense based on the data. The next one is the less we talk about it, the more control it has over us. Uh, I actually heard her say, Brene said one time that if you don't talk about shame at all, you're probably filled with it because it is something that, that all of us uh, have and that all of us are afraid to talk about and that oftentimes if you do, can't pinpoint the things in your life that, uh, that are being ran by shame, then most likely you have quite a few. This is because shame hates being spoken. It hates it, hates being spoken. When we hear the word shame, our first thought is either, I have no idea what that means and I don't want to know, or I know exactly what that is and I don't want to talk about it. Even more common is believing the false narrative that shame is something that happens to other people, not us. Again, this series is for you, not for the person in your life who, who's just got shame, you know, flowing out of every space in their soul. This is for you. And um, even if your world is well compartmentalized and uh, buttoned up, I believe that God still has quite a lot of work to offer if you're willing to do it. Here's some real-time examples shared by the research participants from her early study on shame. Shame is, shame is hiding the fact that I'm in recovery. Shame is secretly raging at my kids. Shame is bankruptcy. Shame is getting laid off and having to tell my pregnant wife. Shame is my boss calling me an idiot in front of the client. Shame is my husband leaving me for my next door neighbor. Shame is my partner asking me for a divorce and telling me that she wants children but not with me. Shame is a DUI. Shame is infertility. As I said, shame is often wrapped up in divorce. 
Shame is all sorts of things that nobody in this room wants to talk about, and yet everybody in this room has experienced. Shame is secret keeping to your own detriment. And shame is something that we are supposed to walk through together. This series will be about facing that reality. It'll be about on the screen focusing our teachings on the release of shame rather than the carrying of shame. We will not spend a bunch of time trying to convince you that there is shame somewhere in your life to be dealt with. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. And if you don't feel like you have any, then you have some work to do with the Holy Spirit. So you've got to figure that out. You've got to spend time on that. And that's a little bit what we're going to talk about today. So with the understanding that this is something all human beings wrestle with on a psychological level, let's take a look at shame from a spiritual perspective. We're going to start off with this idea that we uh, use a lot in the church world, and that is the power of God's voice. It's, we sing about it. We, there's, there's plenty of verses. I'll give you some about it. But God's voice is this beautiful element of creation. That's how God created everything. He spoke it into existence. It's the very first verse in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said with his voice, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night with his voice. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God went on to call everything we see in the world into existence. God called the seas and the lands and the plants and the animals and so on. All happened because of God's voice. Now, the Bible illustrates this in other areas as well. It talks a lot about the power of that voice. Psalm 29.4 says, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Micah 6.9, The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. The voice of the Lord is highlighted a lot as a beautiful element of change and creation and hope and purpose. Now, if you don't know this yet, it's important that you understand that everything that is, is wrong, everything that is warped, is not a new creation of warpedness or a new creation of, of, of wrongness, if you will. Everything that is wrong is something that was good tweaked, just enough for us to accept that it could be true, but really isn't at all healthy for our lives. So if this element of voice brings creation, and this element of voice brings purpose, and this element of God's voice brings life and identity and hope and healing, it makes total sense then that there, of course, would be a voice of shame. Because it works for us, this way that God made us to hear and receive and feel and engage with our heart spiritually and emotionally. It works for us to be able to connect with this voice. And so it makes total sense from a human perspective that much of our shame would come from other voices. Even in this creation story, there's a voice. Chapter three, same story. God creates Adam and Eve. They're perfect beings. They're beautiful, perfect beings. Naked, walking around a perfect garden, just playing with animals. What a life. God spends time with them. He engages with them. And he says, listen, I don't want you just to be robots. You're not people that that just are, are going to exist because I created you to exist in a certain way. So I'm going to put a tree in the middle of the garden. And it's a tree that basically represents a choice to be out of relationship and inside your own desires. 
And so he says, don't eat of this tree, but it has to exist in order for you not to be just, just robots or slaves to my creation. And they're like, yeah, God, no problem. We'll eat of all the other trees in this beautiful garden. We'll leave that one alone. But then one day, they're walking around, and it says the enemy appears. And in this story, they represent him as a serpent. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice the tiny warping. God didn't say not to eat of any tree. He said not to eat of that tree. But the serpent's like, man, that must be hard to be so hungry and around all this beautiful fruit. And the woman's like, whoa, whoa. That's not what God said. He said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She proclaims the the truth, the word of God, the voice of God and what was said. It's not what God said. God said this, but the serpent's not done. So verse four, the serpent says to the woman, whoa, hold on. I think you're misunderstanding. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is a very important context for how shame enters first many of our stories. Whether it's others speaking shame over myself or the enemy speaking shame to me, the voice of shame always speaks lies. And they are always, always, always wrapped in a truth just close enough to home for us to want to believe it. We want to believe these beautiful things, and then the enemy or the world comes along or someone else comes along. We want to be beautiful, but we'll never be beautiful enough. We want to be autonomous, but we'll never be autonomous enough. We want to be whatever this is that, 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 our, that our soul desires, but the enemy comes along and says, but you'll, you'll never be enough. And it lies and it lies and it lies. And it's not just the spiritual enemy or others. Sometimes it's me speaking lies to me. Sometimes I'm the one I, I would say pretty honestly that, that I think no one has spoken more shame into my life. And I've had some pretty good shame speakers. But no one has spoken more shame into my life than me. Than, than who I thought I wanted to be. Than who I thought, even worse, what God wanted me to be that I failed at. That I'm not, I, I'm not the husband I want in my head to be or the dad I want to be. And so constantly I remind myself and I speak to myself and I brush my teeth and I look in the mirror and me knows me. And so every once in a while I see him in the mirror look and go, mm, what am I supposed to do with him? He knows everything. And I'm like, bro, I'm doing okay. Yeah, you are doing Okay. But is that what the kingdom's built on, Danny? Is it built on people who are okay? I haven't seen you hold, seen you hold a, a you know, poisonous serpent in a while. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen you put on your Christian cape and fly around doing all the miraculous things. Actually, you kind of seem like you're bogged down by, well, me. And I am. And it's true. And this woman was bogged down in the same way. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, because she looked and it was true, and that it was a delight to the eyes, which was true, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, listen carefully, who was with her and he ate. This story is often incredibly misrepresented. Like Eve was by herself talking to a serpent, and then she like ran up to Adam, who was probably over in the garden, like praising God and doing hard work, trying to provide for his family. And she was like, are you, honey, hun- are you hungry, honey? And he's like, yeah, I am. I haven't had any time to eat because I'm doing so many amazing things. She's like, here, have an apple. And he's like, oh, thank you. Uh, oh, what did you do, Eve? 
you always do this stuff to me. <laughs> I'm just trying to provide and you're shoving apples in my mouth. This is not how it's supposed to be. That's not what it says. It says the entire dialogue while the woman's engaging with the serpent about the tree, he's just there. Like, and I've thought about it, and this is, this is, this is totally uh, extra biblical, right? This is not theology. This is just Danny and how he reads scripture. <laughs> They're perfect, naked human beings. And I'm just here to tell you, if my wife wanted to pick apples naked, I'm all about it. I'm like, you go for it, honey. You go for it. You pick those apples. I'm just going to be right here. I'm just going to watch. I'm just going to be distracted by the beauty of how God made you. Because I have a hashtag healthy marriage. And I think Adam was like, I don't know who she's talking to, but she sure looks good talking to it. You know, I look at her, look at her, look at her picking all those apples, right? Just, and then she comes over and she's like, would you like an apple? And he's like, I'll, I'll take all the apples. Yeah, he's a part. It's not her fault. They're in it together. And it's just something I needed to make sure you all knew. <laughs> I asked my wife permission to share that story, by the way. She said it was okay. Uh, you will see us buying apple trees, though, later today. So that's, ex <laughs> that's exciting. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. <laughs> I, I'm lost now. I don't even know where I am. Okay. She ate the apple. He ate the apple. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is an important thing to realize as well about that voice. The voice of shame will always try to isolate us from one another and from God. The more alone that the voice of shame can get us, the more the only voice we can hear is the one that continues to tell us we're not worthy of being outside the space that we exist. We're not worthy of relationship. We're not worthy of communion with God. We're not worthy of worship. We're not worthy of, of, of healthy intimacy. We're not worthy of connection. We're not worthy of friendship. I could go on and on and on and on. The voice of shame wants you and me to be alone as possible. And it's actually a really, really easy way to measure people, if you will, measure yourself, about how much shame you have in your life when you're able to look around at who actually knows you. And I'm not talking like the you that, that sits up here. I'm talking like the real you. Who knows your struggles? Who knows your story? Who would show up in the middle of the night to help you? Like, do you have a community of people, not based on dysfunction, by the way, not based on common dysfunctions. This is this is that bar life, the, the beauty of the bar life kind of theology that a lot of people will say, like, man, if church just operated more like the bar where you could just walk in and be your whole self, some of that's true. And some of that's just the fact it's just a bunch of people who all have the same kind of dysfunction. And so they just approve. Like, I don't want to go home to my wife either. Let's be a small group, right? It's, it, it's, not, it's not really all, it's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be people, yes, accepting, but also understanding we all have dysfunction, we all wrestle against the human condition, and that constantly the voice of shame is trying to isolate us, even if it's trying to isolate us in similar groups of dysfunction. Well, if I can get these people together in this group, nobody will talk about the obvious thing, and they'll feel like brothers and sisters in healthy community, but nobody's actually getting better. They're just getting worse together. Hmm. That's for this room right there. Or people online. Maybe somebody online is messing it up. I need to do more blaming on people online than, than just the room. <laughs> but that's, that's profound, right? That, that some of us have communities that allow us to all get worse together. 
And oftentimes those are governed by quiet, quietly held voices of shame. So what does God do? He does what he always does. He shows up. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him this question, where are you? This is an interesting introduction to how God operates when we feel distant from him, when we feel isolated from him. This is a relational question. This is an invitation to to come out of hiding and step into the place that you can engage with God because he is asking, where are you? Everybody knows, nobody's confused, including Adam and Eve, that they know God knows where they are. Like God could just teleport himself right next to them and they'd be like kids with their hands in cookie jars like, oh, like God would be like, what are you guys doing? What happened? And shame, 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 shame. That's not what he does. He makes his presence known, meandering within the midst of their lives, the garden. They hear him, just like some of you hear him right now. They hear him in their marriage. They hear him in their families. They hear him in the business. It's, it's a sound that God's presence just makes. And instead of God just showing up and going, hey, punk, how's living isolated and alone under the governance of shame going for you? Bet that feels terrible. Yeah. Maybe don't eat apples. Pay a little less attention to your naked wife. I'm just saying. God doesn't do any of that. He sits outside of their hiding space and he says, where are you? Proclaiming, by the way, where he is. They can pinpoint his voice. They know he's just beyond the perimeter of where they're hiding and he's inviting them, come out. Come out and be in relationship with me. So the man and the woman do, verse 10, and he said to him, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God asked the second question in the passage, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Who told you this? So we're going we're gonna to sit on this in just a second. The man said, well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So he not only blamed the woman, by the way, this is a great man move, if you ever want to try it. Not only blame the woman, but you blame God who gave you the woman. You're like, you did this, not me. So he turns to the woman. He's going to follow the blame. The woman whom you gave me. Then the Lord said to the woman, verse 13, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, hold on, not me. The serpent deceived me and I ate. This question of who told you, I think, is a really, really important understanding as we begin to engage shame. We're going to, throughout this series, we're going to start walking away with tools. This week is just about summiting. It's just about emotionally, spiritually summiting, getting to the top above the fog and realizing that although we all love to live our lives climbing, you know, the mountains and and getting all the, the accolades, most of the fruit when it comes to your emotional, spiritual development is actually happening down in the valley. That's where fruit grows, by the way. I could run the analogy out for days. All the fruit grows in the valley. This is where our shame likes to consume the roots of our trees. And so we're summiting today to realize that God has already asked, where are you? Inviting you into relationship. And now he's asking, who told you? This is because shame derives its power from being unspeakable. And God wants to point out, I wasn't the one who told you you were naked. I wasn't the one who told you to sow fig leaves. I wasn't the one who told you to change how our relationship dynamic works. I am not the one who proclaims this dysfunction over you. 
God is not here to judge your life and mine and then go, meh, or meh. That's not what he's about. He is here asking, where are you? Come into relationship, which means you expose your nakedness and the sad little leaves that you sowed to cover yourself up. All your excuses, mine too. And he also wants to ask, who told you? Who spoke these things over your life? Whether it's the enemy, whether it's people close to you that are part of your, your legacy, the dysfunction of, of all of us have kind of a generational dysfunction of beliefs. Well, this is just how we are. This is just how we always operate. This is what my grandpa did and his grandpa before him. This is a legacy of people telling people, telling people, telling people, this is how we exist. And God's stepping in like this story right here and saying, but that's not me. That's not me. And your kids, by the way, they don't have to continue on the legacy. If you'll be the one who comes out of hiding and answers the question God's asking of who told you, speak it, share it with him. We're going to do an entire week about how to share shame and how to, how to qualify people, by the way, that should be good shame receivers. Because some of the damage that's happened is churches. It's like, you guys got to get out there and confess to people. And then you go confess, I've done this, to the wrong kind of people. And then they start leveraging it against you. We're going to, don't, don't go out and start sharing your shame with everybody. You're just summoning today and recognizing there are questions, huge questions that God is asking. But God wanting to highlight the voice of shame in this story, the serpent, he turns to the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your lives. And I will put enmity, this is a very important verse, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. Heal. This verse is, the, is what's known as Proto-Evangelium. Okay, it's rooted in Greek. Proto-Evangelium, I'll put it up, is the first gospel. It's the predicting the defeat of evil by the victory of Jesus Christ and thus as the first promise or gospel of the coming Redeemer. And it's a direct response to shame. This is the first time that Jesus is mentioned anywhere in all creation and it's from God responding to the accuser to the enemy to the voice of shame I have a better voice I'm going to produce a better voice and that voice is going to continue to ask this question so that my children for generation after generation after generation can respond this from the very beginning, calls us to come out of hiding and leave behind the shame that's heckling us. I'll put it on the screen, last quote, in the same way the voice of shame speaks things into death, the God who loves you through Jesus Christ speaks things into life. And he's asking the same two questions still today, right now. Where are you? And who told you? Where are you hiding? Stuff in your life that just keeps you from being able to smile a full smile. Where are you hiding the stuff in your life that keeps you from embracing the love that other people have been trying to offer you for a long time? Where are you hiding the stuff in your life that keeps you reacting or reenacting in, in, in this cyclical manner, this, this behavior that keeps bringing like, like temporary soothing and numbing often is just filling your life to the brim with more and more shame. 
And can you come out of this space? God already knows, by the way. Can you come out of this space, come out of hiding with your, with your fig leaves and with whatever you achieved in your life to cover up these spaces that you feel shamed? Where can you walk out into the open and just know that the blood of Christ, this, the Easter story that's, that's still so very much alive that covers you, can sit in a space that is filled with his presence, not your failures. And who told you? Who told you you're not good enough? Who told you there's no purpose? Who told you that you can't fix this? Who told you it's already beyond, I am what I am? Who told you that? Because if you really look back and you spend time out of hiding with God, you will find it is not his voice. That it is not his story, that it is not his scripture, that it is not his purpose to judge and condemn you. But instead, his purpose is to walk in the cool of the garden with you once again. To acknowledge the stuff in your life that it's, it's incomplete, the stuff in my life that, that I'm embarrassed, I'm still struggling with at this age and this point in my story. He knows. He's just waiting for me to know. And once I know that he knows, that's when he's like, who told you, Danny, I couldn't take care of that? Who told you that you're not good enough? Who told you that this church will be too much? Who told you that you can't be the husband you want to be and the dad you want to be and the pastor you want to be? Who told you? And so this week, this is, our, uh, this is our mandate. We're gonna sit on this summit, if you're willing, and we're gonna ponder those questions. Where am I and who told me? And we're gonna do it with God. And I believe he is going to slowly clear fog away. And maybe at first the giants will seem huge. But I'm just here to tell you our God is much, much more. That he loves you, that you are enough, that you are beautiful, that you are brave, and that he's ready if you are. He's ready if we are. And plus, it's not gonna be fair if I'm the only one doing this kind of work by myself. We're supposed to do it together. It's going to be messy. I've already told you that. I promised I will deliver. And uh, my guess is it'll become a really beautiful space for even people who aren't here to come and go, oh, this, this is different. These people smile their whole smiles. These people live lightly. In spite of some heaviness, it's clearly marked in their story. I want that. And all we got to do is say, hey, God's asking you the same question he's asking me. Where are you? And who told you? So that's my hope for you. I'll be here throughout the whole series, the whole mess of it. And uh, I hope it's transformative for all of us. Amen. Amen. Will you stand? We'll close a prayer.
Lord, in a, in a room like this and with people at home watching, there's just, there's just no way to, to meet the moment. And so, God, what I ask instead is that, is that, it, would, uh, that it would be a space that is incredibly personal for each person that's participating in this right now. That it would be about our individual stories, our individual secrets, our individual hurt and pain, our disappointments, even the ones that are disappointments with you. That we could bring it all, God. That we could sit on this summit alongside you and each other and stare out at things we have never been able to defeat knowing that in order to do so, we have to come out of hiding and we have to listen to a different voice. So Lord, I pray this week that there would not be a sense of shame, but a sense of curiosity, a sense of maybe even excitement to sit with a God who is alive, no longer crouching beneath the emotional trees of failure, but instead, Lord, can walk out in the cool breeze of what it means to be known. I pray that we would really be honest about where we are with you and that we would be willing to just focus in on how you feel and what you say about us. We are your children, God. We proclaim that. We know you love us more than we could ever imagine. And so God, in this place, may every person in this room leave with an incredible sense of your presence and how proud you are of us for being willing to sit in such uncomfortable spaces with you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this family. Thank you for all that you're about to accomplish in our lives. We lift it all up to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless. I'll see you guys next week.